I'd like for you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12. Kind of a rhetorical question, but when you think about the year 2020 coming up, what do you think about? I mean, if you were a marketer, if you were into marketing, you know, I'm thinking about next year's theme and things like that. What's kind of the first thing that comes to your mind when you just think about the numbers 2020? Yeah, I see people moving their glasses, people moving their eyeballs, people pointing to their eyes. So we have eyes physically that God gave us. And I think when Jesus went around and say he healed the deaf, I think the bigger point is that if he has power over physical hearing, he also has power over spiritual hearing. When he heals the blind, I think he's demonstrating that he not only has power over physical eyesight, which is a tremendous miracle, but he also has power over spiritual eyesight. So what I'd like to talk about this morning is from John chapter 12. I'm going to read something here, and I'm going to read a catchphrase that I kind of visit a lot. You'll be familiar with it, but I want to talk about seeing Jesus wanting to see Jesus, wanting to see Jesus. This is off the script for me. I just felt inclined to go in this direction. Uh, we did our theme last week, and last week was kind of weird, to be honest with you. I'm like, uh, I don't know if that, because it was so condensed, and it was just weird for me. Uh, I love the fellowship part. I just thought the preaching part was pretty lame. Um, <laughs> But this week, I, I was praying, and, and I think Jesus was nudging me to just talk about Christ. And here's the reason why. By the way, music team, I love the words. Keith, good job on, so I don't know who did it, but the, the words and the songs that you picked, I was thinking, man, very Christ-centric, uh, very appropriate. And we didn't plan it ahead of time, but they go along with what I'm going to be saying. Um, so if you take your Bibles in John chapter 12, I'd like to read the passage, pray, then go back to the passage, and then focus in on just uh, verse 21, the end of that verse, and then just talking about seeing Jesus, all right? So look with me, if you would, John 12, verse 20. And there were certain Greeks among those who came up uh, to worship at the feast, and we'll talk about these Greeks here in a minute. Then these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, these Greeks did, Sir, we want to see Jesus. What's the scuttlebutt about? What's all the hoopla? What's, what's the big to-do, right? I, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Of course, Jesus knew he was going to go to the cross, he was going to be pierced, and that his blood was going to be uh, the, the catalyst to bring in the new covenant, the New Testament, whereby all of our sins and iniquities he would remember no more, that he would be buried, and then he would rise again on the third day, which was Easter, which is coming up here shortly uh, when we celebrate that. But he knows that he's about to go and do all that, and then he says this statement, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. 
but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. I've taught on that verse many times in, in the way that I'm not going to teach on it today, but I'll just give you just a brief overview of that verse. The, one of the applications being that our outer man, the, the, the dependency that we have on our flesh, our own abilities, our own strength, sometimes that stuff needs to fall into the ground and die. Right? How we do things out of the energy of our own flesh. How we're so used to getting by without relying on the Spirit. How we're so used to just doing life from mechanisms that used to work in the past. So we just, we just roll them on into the future thinking that it's going to work again. And we have this, we have this uh, success rate in the flesh that's pretty good. So we don't really rely on the Spirit. And sometimes the seed needs to go into the ground. And that outer casing needs to kind of erode in the dirt. And it needs to kind of decay so that the life that's within that seed could come forth. And of course, that being the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit that he put within us. That, we're not going to talk about that today, but I want you to think about that. Because oftentimes we want to prevent that process from happening. I know I do. But let's pray and then I want to go back and just talk about seeing Jesus. Just talk about seeing Jesus. All right? Amen? Sound good? Okay, let's do it. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that um, you even said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the church. And we have eyes, Lord, but we want to see, um, we want to hear, uh, we want to taste and also see that the Lord is good. And we know this is, uh, these are spiritual truths that you're trying to impart to us in our newborn again nature. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would just be glorified as you were already glorified and continue to be glorified. But the glory that you gave us as you placed your life in us, may we experience it today. May we know it. May we see it. May it be real. And so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus came into town riding on a donkey, being hailed as the king. And I know we're coming into, you know, Palm Sunday and Easter um, and all that stuff related to that. Um, But I just think it's interesting that if you were to read the verses before in this John chapter 12 section, that um, there had been many people that were just kind of astounded by Jesus. At one point point in in this chapter, um, they had heard about uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead. And, and it even says that they didn't come to necessarily see Jesus, but to see Lazarus. And the Pharisees conspired in this chapter. They said, we better kill Lazarus. This is how disturbed they were by the presence and the person of Jesus. They said, let's just get rid of, let's just get rid of Lazarus. This, okay, these are Jews, the Pharisees, that had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Do you think they had most of the Ten Commandments memorized, one of them being, what is it, commandment number six? Thou shalt not kill. No, parents, I think it's commandment number seven. Regardless, it's in the Big Ten, right? <laughs> and they wanted to just, you know, in the name of God, just get rid of the evidence of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Maybe they thought like, well, he's already dead one time. It's not going to be a big surprise, you know. Let's just get rid of him. Let's off the, let's off the guy. So these same people, of course, that are 
hailing him uh, king of the Jews are going to be the very same crowd that are going to be saying crucify him not too much longer from this point. But they said, if we don't do something about this, this is another statement they made in verse 19 before verse 20 where we started, the whole world is going to go after him. And isn't, isn't it amazing when you think about Jesus? Just say, just say that five-letter word at work sometime and see what happens. Jesus, the five-letter word, right? Jesus, just think about that. The whole world is going to go after him. He has shaped the, the course of history. Our calendar's marked after his date, right? We have holidays that that the biggest commerce on the planet, our economy, comes to a halt. It actually spikes for sales for certain things because they've turned everyone into merchandise. Needless to say, the day's off. You might substitute Jesus for a bunny or Christ for Santa Claus. Needless to say, I don't care. It's still about Jesus. I mean, this guy has shaped, not this guy irreverently, I mean it because we're on the same team. He has shaped our calendar and the course of our history. And so there's these Greeks that were coming, and I, I want to say this, that these Greeks, um, the certain Greeks which came up to worship him, this is basically a prelude or a prelude to the Gentile church because these aren't Hellenists. These aren't Jews that were immersed in the Greek culture that, that read the Septuagint, even though that was the most widely uh, read um, copy of the Old Testament during that time. These were actual Greeks that were converted or proselyted. In fact, they were referred to as the proselytes at the gate. So these were um, real bona fide Greeks that converted to Judaism and had certain rights and privileges as being proselytes or converts to Judaism. So they were coming up, but it's these Greeks that are asking Philip, and they said, hey, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful request. We want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. Let's look at the definition for the word see. It'll be up on the screen here. Kind of lengthy, but I want you to, I want you to see the word see. <laughs> it means to see, it means to perceive with the eyes, to perceive by any of the senses. And think about that, I mentioned it already, but you know you have five senses physically, but you have those same senses spiritually in your born-againness? Think about this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the Bible says. Taste and see. How do you taste the Lord? How do you see the Lord? By the eyes of faith. Do you realize that, that the Bible talks about you, your life lived in such a way can leave a sweet fragrance and a sweet-smelling savor of Christ? Do you realize you could, you could engage a sense in someone's nostril, spiritually speaking, when you, when you emulate or um, protrude, I don't know if these are right words, uh, if you cast this great smell, I almost said stench, but if you cast a, a fragrance of Christ, right? I know most of the time there's some other smells coming off of a lot of people, right? Not Jesus, not Jesus. But taste, see, smell, touch Christ. And so in our definition, to perceive by senses, to perceive, to notice, discern, discover, uh, to turn the eyes, the mind, the attention to anything, could you see the, 
the, the fix, the, the purpose for which these guys, they didn't want to see anything substituted for Christ. They wanted the actual Christ to see, to pay attention, to observe, to see, to inspect, to examine, to look at, and to behold. <clears throat> and so they said, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus course as i was going through this definition it uses the word behold so it naturally took me to john chapter one and you'll know this passage but if you look up on the screen or turn in your bibles and john bore witness saying i saw the spirit descending that's kind of an interesting thing to see the spirit to see the pneumos the wind uh, as he's likened unto descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon jesus i did not know him but he who sent me to baptize with water, the said same unto me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, look at the word seen, he's using this a lot, and do testify that this is the Son of God. And then again the next day, John stood with his two disciples and looking at Jesus, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. In other words, Going back to our definition, inspect this lamb, examine this lamb, pay attention to this lamb, turn your eyes upon, um, perceive this lamb, uh, pay attention to this lamb, um, uh, experience the condition of this lamb. And so the word see, if you think about it, when it's connected to Jesus, to see Jesus, it goes much deeper than some casual glance than to go back right to what we're doing before. Is that not how most of your Christian experience is? Like, I want to see Jesus to this degree when I'm in a rock and a hard place, right? I want to see Jesus when something's going really bad, right? I want to see Jesus when I get myself in a pickle or things just aren't going all that well, <clears throat> right? I want to see Jesus in those times but what about desiring to see Jesus on a continuous daily basis? And let's think about this. If the Holy Spirit truly resides in every heart of, every heart of the born-again believers in here, what's his job anyways? Jesus said a few chapters where we started, he's going to come. He's not going to testify of himself. He's going to testify of me, right? And so what do you think the Holy Spirit's... When we choose to yield, in, yield to the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit and not to walk after the flesh. The flesh is all too familiar, right? It's fake love. It's phony fellowship. It's like insincerity. It's not genuine. It's selfish. We're so... That, 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 but to walk in the Spirit, what's the Spirit in us going to lead us to look at? What's, what's the Spirit in us going to cause us to desire to behold and to be fixated upon? Because I know, I don't know about you, but I've been fixated and stared and looked, upat, uh, looked upon many things that are not Jesus that have captivated my attention. Have you? So in their desire, they said, we want to see Jesus. Well, I want to bring this up too. To see Jesus, um, I, I didn't read it at the, yeah, look at the last part of that verse. Jesus says, well, come on, come and see. Come and see. Uh, he invites everyone to come and see. It doesn't matter. He's telling the Greeks, come and see. 
Um, he's telling the, the Jews, come and see. He's asking and inviting anyone to come and see. But what I'd like to kind of point out today is to see Jesus through the chaos of life as so many shiny objects and things are pulling us away from looking and beholding and examining and being fixated upon and being at least mindful of, as so many things are vying for our eyeballs and our spiritual eyes and our ears and our, and our thoughts, as so many things would distract us from Jesus, I want to maybe bring this verse up to kind of pull it back. And only you and God can determine to do that. It's the act of your will. You have to let this mind be in you. You have to allow it. Uh, it's there, but you have to give it permission um, by the act of your will. But turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because I think when I mentioned C, in the definition itself, it's very simple. It's very straightforward. This is a very basic message but i think in its essence is a very powerful message to be honest with you this is where my heartbeat is right here this this is my passion and he says this in second corinthians 11 right into this church that got so they have their eyes off of jesus they have their eyes on so many things other than jesus and th this is an easy thing to do so he writes to them, and he says, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, for I, in, I indeed, uh, for, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And this word jealous here is zilu in the Greek. It's the same thing where we get the word, our English word zealous. It means to have a warmth of feeling for or against. Now, you could be jealous of someone or something or you could be jealous for them and he's jealous for them he's he has he says it's even a godly jealousy he has this godly warmth and he has this godly feeling for them not against them and he says this for i betroth you to one husband that i might present you a chaste virgin to christ but i'm afraid i'm just i'm just i'm scared for you lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. The simplicity that's in Christ. It could be so convoluted and, and messy sometimes in the chaos of life. Do you ever feel lonely for Jesus sometimes? You ever feel that? You ever feel like, I, you, you know he doesn't leave you, you know he doesn't forsake you, but have you ever felt like, man, things have got so complicated, right? Doesn't life kind of come at you and get complicated sometimes? And he's saying, there's a simplicity that's in Christ. There's a purity, there's a, like a, there's a, there's just a, I don't know how to put it other than, he, it's the best word, there's a simplicity that's in Christ but there's a welcomeness, there's a hospitality, there's, a, there's a, this unconditional uh, acceptance and, and welcoming back to the simplicity in Christ. And so I'd like to just kind of throw this out there just to see the simplicity of Christ uh, in our salvation. You know, it wasn't difficult to get saved. 
I say this all the time. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals everything for eternal life, and it equals everything for a daily abundant Christian life as well. But to see Christ and his simplicity uh, with the widows, to see him in his simplicity uh, and how he deals with the fatherless, to see him, the Christ in his simplicity with the lepers, to see Christ in his simplicity with the prostitutes, to see Christ and his simplicity with the sinners. And I say this because there was a time in my life where I knew much about doctrine, but I knew little about Christ. Have you ever been that way? I knew a lot about apologetics. I could argue you about creation and evolution. In fact, my wife and I met because someone, uh, a friend of ours said, oh, you need to do a, a research paper on creation and evolution. Um, I have this pastor... Uh, this youth pastor friend that he has tons of books on that. You should go get your materials from him, and that's how we met, right? So apologetics allowed me to get married to the love of my life. Um, but look, uh, uh, apologetics was great. I, I loved eschatology. Oh, boy, I loved the study of who's the Antichrist and the one world government that's going to come and the cashless society and the, the world constitution. And I was so into that stuff, but I would say I was more interested in the Antichrist than I was in Jesus Christ. And by the way, I knew more about the Antichrist, which the Bible says you won't even know who he is in Second Thessalonians, but I felt like I knew more about the, this ambiguous character. At least I was more passionate about knowing him. So if someone were to say to me, hey, you know, what say you about Jesus Christ? I had a little bit to say about Christ, but I had a lot to say about the Bible and doctrine and, you know, eschatology, soteriology, pneumatology, all the ologies, right? <laughs> Except my, what do you call it, my Christology was pretty lame. Um, is that even a word, George? I don't know. You know what I mean. My study of the person of Christ was very minimal. So, I felt like I needed to know Jesus, not Christianity, Christ. I knew a lot about Christianity, the do's and the don'ts. I knew little about Christ, and it felt hollow. It felt powerless. It felt like there was, there was no difference in that than many other religions, right? So, Jesus had to take me on a journey, and I had to, I had to come to know the person of Christ. And so, you know, studying the Bible then didn't be, I was telling this to our vision team uh, last week, uh, and I said, you know what? We don't come to the Bible to know facts. We come to the Bible to know the Father. And I was coming to the Bible just simply to know facts. I wasn't coming to the Bible to know the author. And so, now, when I go to the Bible and where Jesus said, all these things were written concerning me, I look for Jesus in the pages of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, right? I, I just, I try to look for Jesus all over the Bible. One thing that struck me recently was, and I'm, when I was looking for Jesus and how he's dealing with people, because when you see Jesus, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one's seen God at any time, the Bible says, but Jesus says, if you've seen me, You've seen not what the Father looks like, but who the Father acts like. So when you see things where Jesus in Matthew chapter 8, a centurion, get, let me give you this, the background. <clears throat> Israel has been taken over. They are being occupied by the Roman 
military and the government. Their arm was long-reaching. <laughs> These Italians went across the, you know, out of their way um, or around the bend uh, to get over to this little postage stamp piece of land to occupy it. And so they're there with all of their military might and they're imposing their rules and they're trying to make this cohabitation exist. But they did hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of public executions by way of the crucifixion, right? A heinous way to, and a humiliating way to strip someone down and to see them struggle and to gasp for life, rubbing their naked back up and down a, like a rugged cross that we sing about. I always think about, because I did construction for so long, about splinters going in and out of your back. Because it's not like it was sanded pieces of wood that you find at Home Depot, right? up and down the cross, trying to, you know, get another, another breath of life. And so here's a centurion in Matthew chapter 8 that comes to Jesus, and he says this. He says, I, look, I'm a man that has power and authority. I tell someone to do something, they do it. It's kind of, it's, it's what I, and furthermore, he's basically, he's basically saying, I have a servant, he's going to die. I have all these people under me. I realize you have the power to do things that no one else has the power to do. Can you come to my house and heal this guy? And Jesus is surprised. Of course, nothing really catches him off guard, but he makes an example of this guy because here's a guy that's an enemy of the state. He's killing Jews, Gentiles, anyone that's going against the machine of the Roman Empire. He's publicly executing them. And he has the command of soldiers to just, maybe, maybe they circumvented um, capital punishment and maybe they just killed people at will. This is the kind of power and authority this guy had. He's not a friend that you would want in your house or to really have a lot of fellowship with or to sit down and, hey, let's have some coffee. Let's have a cappuccino, right? You're from Italy. Let's have a cappuccino. Um, you're not going to sit down and have a cappuccino with the centurion, but the centurion comes to Jesus with his, as he's surrounded with his disciples, and he says, can you heal my servant? Just come. And, and Jesus is taken back by this, and he says, I've never seen faith like this at all, not, not amongst Israel. He actually says the faith that this guy has is much higher than the faith of all the Jews that have ever come to him. Look into this story. It's pretty interesting because Jesus is, he's non-discriminatory. He's not racist. Uh, Like I've said a million times, he's an equal opportunity uh, savior and he's equal access. So the guy feels freedom to come to him. He doesn't feel like he's going to get judged. He doesn't feel like he's going to get, you know, made fun of or, you know, who would make fun of this guy? He'd probably kill you anyways, you know, (laughs) but he feels like he has access to Christ, and he feels like not only does he have access, but he said, look, I have power and authority too, but so do you. With your power and authority, can't you, however you do this, just heal my servant? And Jesus then, he just says, go your way. It's in Matthew chapter 8. Um, go your way. Your servant is healed. All I'm saying is when you look, look, when you study the Bible, how, how does that make you see Jesus? He left that story in there because it's a real live account so we could see Jesus. See Jesus with the centurion, a murderer, an enemy of the state. See Jesus with the harlot. See Jesus with whoever. You see, see him with the little kids. See Jesus in his simplicity. 
because it could get pretty stinking messy and chaotic and convoluted if you're looking for something other than Jesus, right? Okay, yeah, amen. <laughs> amen, preacher, that was, <laughs> that was really insightful. <laughs> Can't wait to see Jesus. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, but I'm saying this because Christ gives us life. He doesn't give us things in life. He gives us his very life. And I want to qualify that by saying, look, everyone wants to be spiritual, but you can't be spiritual without the Spirit. We all say we want to be godly, but you can't be godly without God. And we can never become a Christian without Christ. Christianity is Christ. It's not a something we have joined. It's a someone who has joined us. Think about that. It's not a cause you've joined. Well, we, we believe in creation. They believe in evolution. We believe in the right to choose life, and they believe in this, and we believe in anti, you know, this type of marriage, and they don't, and it's not what we're for and against. We've joined not a cause. There is a cause, and all these things are right, but we've joined a someone, not some set of rules or some set of right and wrongness. Uh, you know, think about this. I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, because I, th- I was thinking, God, what's so, the, the, the devil comes and he says to Adam and Eve, all right, here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Think about this really quick with me. I thought, God, well, what's so wrong about knowing what's good and what's bad? I would probably would have been tricked right there at the tree, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, what's so wrong about that? But it's not, it's not about knowing what's good and what's evil. It's about knowing God, Do you get it? It's not about knowing good or evil. It's about knowing God. Knowing good and evil is less than knowing God. That's the trick. Doctrine is good. Theology is good. All this stuff is good. Creation is good. The right for life is good. All that stuff's good. I'm not saying it's not. There's a lot of good. But something's better, and it's knowing God. That's the better, right? Don't settle for something less than God, even if it's good. Whoa, someone record that. Because it's true, not because I said it, because it's stinking true. (laughs) Look at this quote. I love this book. One of my favorite books. In fact, Keith, book number two, I highly recommend. This is top shelf stuff. Christ, the sum of all spiritual things by Watchman Nee. I, I bought it years ago in bulk for a dollar a book. I wish I, wa- like I want to do it again. It changed my life. Not more than the Bible, so don't get me wrong, but he is so laser-focused on this one thing, and I'll just give you a snippet, and th- this is just a, a sampling, if you would. <laughs> he says, you ought to realize before God Uh, That which is spiritual is not a thing, but is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not what you have or what you can do, nor yet what you can get, but only what Christ is. Except he becomes that thing in your life, nothing else is of any spiritual worth. In the spiritual world, there is nothing but Christ, since he is God's everything. And he was just going on and on and on about you don't get more peace You don't get more forgiveness. God doesn't give you things. He gives you everything when he gives you Christ. Because you could start looking for the the lesser things, right? 
Give me this, give me that, give me this. And you could be on a hunt for it. You go to conferences for it, buy books about it, follow programs to get it. When all along he's saying, those are good things, but the best thing is Christ. And you have everything when you have Christ. Read it. It's a great book. It's small, too. That, if that encourages you even more, it's a really small, good, powerful read. It's a game changer. So Christianity is not a somewhere that if we keep all the rules we get to go to and we die. Christianity is a someone that we will spend all of eternity with. Now this is going to kind of throw you for a loop, but I, I have this other quote that I want to read, and I'm just going to read it because I want to make a point with some other Bible verses talking about seeing Jesus. But I'm going to take this quote and I'm going to use it as a point. But we'll find ourselves in March 23rd, 1775, Patrick Henry, one of, you know, just the great Sebastians of uh, American patriotism. And he says this in this quote. You'll know this. You'll know this speech. These are just snippets of the speech. Mr. President, he's obviously not talking to the President of the United States. He's not talking to George Washington. He's talking to the President of the Convention in Virginia because the, the date is 1775. He says, Mr. President, it is natural to man to indulge in the illusions of hope. Of course, the British army is all upon them. Their life, liberty, and freedom is at stake. If they, don't, if they don't act, we are not sitting here in the freedom that we have. If they don't act, you get the importance, right? If they don't do something, this building's not here. That's kind of the brevity of the situation. So he says, we're apt to shut our eyes against a painful truth and to listen to the song of the siren till she transforms us into beasts. Is this the part of wise men engaged in a great and arduous uh, struggle for liberty? Are we disposed to be of the number of those who having eyes see not and having ears hear not? Good sens- sen- sensory perceptive reference there, Patrick, I do say. The things which so nearly concern their temporal salvation, meaning their temporary stuff, not eternal life. For my part, whatever anguish of spirit it might cost, I am willing to know the whole truth, to know the worst, and to provide for it. Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature hath placed in our power. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will uh, raise up friends to fight our battles for us. Viva la France. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. You know that part. Give me liberty or give me death. Read the whole speech. It's awesome. It's phenomenal. Pivotal moment. But could you see, like, your back up against the wall and if they don't act, they will be in the chains of slavery. Or slavery. And so my point is this. Have we ever been so desperate 
for life and liberty? Have we ever been so passionate, so jealous, uh, per se, with a godly jealousy, with that, with that zeal or that heat to have warmth of feeling for or against something? Have we ever been so moved, right? And of course, his circumstances demanded it, but have we ever been so passionate as to desire Christ above all and everything else? So in other words, could we flip the script of Patrick Henry's speech at the end, which that is the end of his speech, those, that last tagline, but could we flip the script and say, give me Christ or give me death? Think about it. He's saying, give me liberty or give me death. I'd say this, if you don't have Christ, you don't have liberty. Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's what the Bible says, right? And if Christ is in you, you have liberty. But let me ask you, are you experiencing his life and liberty? Do you desire it? Do you have passion for it? Do you have this zeal, this fervent heat, this warmth of affection do you want to say, sir, I want to see Jesus? Do you want to cut through the crowd and, a mute and hit the mute button of all the noise of life and say, give me Jesus, or give, I don't want anything else? Or is it give me the latest, greatest, or give me a new series because I'm bored with this last one? That's usually what I say. <laughs> give me something new on Netflix because this algorithm stinks, man. You're, t- you're suggesting some weird stuff, Netflix. Give me something good or give me no Netflix at all. Usually what I say. But do you ever find yourself in a place where you're saying, what's it all about? Why do I go to church? Why do I read my Bible? Why do we support missionaries? What's it all about? Give me Jesus or give me death. Because really, isn't it all just a clanking cymbal and a, and a sounding brass? Isn't it just like just noise and clamor if it isn't attached to the God of love? So I want to conclude with just two verses out of Philippians. (coughs) Paul is in prison, and he's writing this. And I love the book of Philippians. You're discouraged out there. Most of us are a a lot of the times. Hone in on Philippians, right? Camp there for a while in Philippians. And read it from start to finish, and then go back. But Philippians chapter 1. And I used a different translation on this. I forget which one it was. I have like 20 or 30 and, um, that, I, that I regularly compare and bounce off of. But I'll, for me to live as Christ is normally the, you know, the, the New King James rendition. But I like this translation. For, for to me, life is Christ. For to me, life is Christ. I've done this verse so many times where I put a blank line there. For to you, blank <laughs> is Christ, right? Or living is, and you put in the, you fill in the blank. Living is work. Living is hobbies. Living is just getting our kids graduated from school safely and out of the house. Um, <laughs> living is... Um, you know, you fill in the blanks. Living is a big 401k. Living is having $3 million in the bank to retire in California on. Um, living is, you fill in the blank. Paul's the same one that said, you know, naked I came, naked I leave. I mean, he's quoting Job, but blessed is the name of the Lord. With food and raiment, let us therewith be content. 
So he's realizing, I'm I about to get my head chopped off, most likely. He doesn't know the future. He's in prison waiting, like, you know, a sentencing. And he's there, and he's probably going to lose my head. And so he's saying this statement in the worst of circumstances, in a dank dungeon, writing these awesome, encouraging words to other people who might be discouraged outside of a dank dungeon, not with their lives in jeopardy. Think about the flip-flop here, right? And he says, here's, here's not what life is, but who life is to me. It's Jesus, and death is gain. Why? Moses didn't get to go into the promised land, and I, I stood at Mount Nebo where, where God told him that in, in, the, in Jordan, in the Middle East. And I stood there, and I looked, and I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to go down with these complaining people either, right? <laughs> I always thought it was like a demotion, like Moses, you know, Joshua and Caleb, they get to go in, and that other generation, you read about that in the book of Numbers, and then in Joshua, they get to go in the promised land, but you don't. I always thought, God, what's, that's, what? 40 years of listening to these murmuring, complaining people, and he doesn't even, but he gets to go to, to be with the person of the promised land, which is far better than going into the place of the promised land with a bunch of complainers, right? So Paul's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He gets a promotion, right? And then he gets real practical in verse 22. But what if the life here in the body, if uh, this brings me the fruit of my labors, then which to choose I cannot tell. I'm sorely perplexed either way. You know, I can, yeah, I'm just torn between this. I want to go be with Jesus. I'm okay to get my head cut off in prison. I'm cool with that. Can't scare me with heaven type of thing. But I do, I feel like there's a lot more I need to accomplish and can accomplish through the power of Christ, which he says later in chapter 4. My own desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. He wants to go to be with Jesus. That's a, that's a person that says, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. You realize he's not talking about the streets of gold and the mansion that he's going to get, which is a trap. It's a smoke screen. Don't fall for mansions. Really, it's all about the real estate you get in heaven, or is it about the person you get to be with throughout all of eternity? Is it about really the, about the streets of gold? Really, is it you know? And the and I'm not gonna I don't want to offend any fishermen in here, but is it really about the fishing, right? Um, or is it about the one who said, "I'll make you fishers of men"? It's about Jesus, and so he says, "I have a desire to depart." And not to go to a place, but to be with a person, which is far, far, far better. Look at Philippians chapter 3. This will be the last passage we'll look at before we wrap it up in our text. It says, though I might have confidence in the flesh. Look at, flesh could have two different shapes. It could look very ugly or it could look very attractive. Look at this good-looking flesh he's going to talk about. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if everyone thought, thinks that he might have confidence in the flesh, I the more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, Pharisee. Remember Jesus said, except your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees? I mean, he's the, these are the green berets of religion, man. These are the, the Navy seals, the cream of the crop. This is the honor roll right here. He says, concerning zeal, there's that word again, persecuting the church. He had this passion 
for or against, and it was against the church, but he thought it was for the Lord in the name of God. So he was killing Christians in the name of, killing in the name of God. Um, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But which things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for Christ. Dung, rubbish, worthless. So whatever ladder he thought he was climbing, it was an empty rung ladder because it didn't get him anywhere because Christ is all that matters. Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellency and the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might have Christ. Look at, I love this, this is a great salvation verse for those trying to get justified by the law. And to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from of God, which is from God by faith. And then he says this, that I might know him. And we could even say that I might see him. I might experience him. That I might have a passion to, you know, clear the, the clutter and just be focused in on Christ as life is coming at us all the time and trying to steer us away. And he says, in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. So, you don't have to turn the screen there, but where we first started, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. This is in John 12, where we first started, who's from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. So, just in conclusion, just look at some thoughts here. Not in a condemning way, but in a challenging way. Okay? Who or what do we desire, are jealous for, want to see above anything or anyone else? That we would see Jesus in his life and in his love. That we would behold the Lamb of God in his self-sacrifice for others. That we would see him in his simple love for us and his simple love for others. That that we would not just see Jesus and know him, but to show him and to make him known to others in our life and through our life. So I have this last part. So let's go see Jesus and make him seen. How could we make Jesus seen in our lives? Well, look, you gotta, you got to know Jesus, right? So you know him, He's not just confined to a book, but you come to know him, right? Not facts, but you come to know the Father through faith. You know him, and then you show him. So see him dealing with people. See him with sinners. See him with the rejects. See him with the religious crowd. See him with, you know, uh, mothers that aren't, uh, that are separated from their children, or see, you know, see him with divorced people, uh, see him with in any situation. See Jesus, right? And then make him known to others. Make other people or allow other people to see Jesus in and through your life. Amen? That's what people need to see. They really need to, we need to see and we need to make him seen or allow him to be seen. Is that good? All right. Uh, I'm going to pray for you, and then uh, Jerry's going to come up, and we're going to finish the service um, with our special love offering for our missionary. 
Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this wonderful church that, um, I thank you for our freedom that I'm even able to be up here and to freely speak. And I trust, Lord, that you had liberty amongst your people. If there's someone here that's never received you into their heart, uh, may they do that. May they just seek me out or someone else before they leave. And Lord, may we really have a burning passion to see you and all the clutter and chaos in life to really desire to see you. And I know that's what your Holy Spirit in us is drawing us to do. But Lord, I guess help our want-tos because our want-to is so strong for so many things other than Jesus. So that's my heart and prayer for my life, for my kids, for my wife, for me, for our marriage, for this church, that we would see you and make you seen. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.